So in this series, we are talking about what I think is one of the biggest questions you can ever ask yourselves. Uh, it's this, like, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus in 2022 in our modern times? Like, what does it mean to actually follow this Jesus who's invisible to us? It's like chasing after a shadow, right? Uh, some people say, like, they ask me, like, what's it really mean to follow Jesus? And they'll be like, so do you, like, sort of just, like, have an imaginary friend and Jesus is your imaginary friend? And I'm like, oh, not really. I see what you're going with there and not quite. Is, is following Jesus just about staying away from certain behaviors? Like, well, following Jesus is about saying no, no, no to, like, so many things. And if you find yourself saying yes to the things you're supposed to say no to, you might end up in the place that you don't want to be at the end of your life, right? Like, what is that all about? And so what we've wanted to do and what we're doing over this six-week series um, is that we want to take, like, a step back and we want to ask the question, like, what was Jesus all about when he said, come follow me? What was this life, what was this thing that Jesus was inviting his first century followers into that he's still inviting us into as well? And so hopefully from there, we'll see how we can be people that follow this invisible God um, because he's inviting us to not just believe in him, like in our heads, but to follow him with our everyday lives. And last week, we started by saying we need to reframe the story that we think Christianity is all about. I don't know about you, but like the story that I feel like I was handed, or at least how culture described uh, Christianity from a young age, was all about evacuation. It was about doing something so at the end of my life, I didn't go to the bad place, uh, H-E double hockey stick, but I went to the good place, like uh, Pleasure Town, when everything's just amazing up in heaven. Like I thought that's what the goal was all about. And many of us have reduced the Christian story and the story of the scriptures to what do we need to do to not go to the bad place, but go to the good place. Uh, Dallas Willard, who's a great author, theologian, said that many of us have reduced Christianity, the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus, to the bare minimum entry requirements to eternal heaven. Let me say that again. Many of us have reduced the story of Jesus, the story of Christianity, to the bare minimum entry requirement to equal eternal heaven. In America, like, can we just admit that we love the bare minimum about certain things? Like, I mean, when it comes to paying taxes, I don't know anybody who's like, you know what, they told me I needed to pay a certain amount, but I'm going above and beyond this year on my taxes. I don't know people like that. Uh, I, I, I understand the bare minimum when I have to go to the eye doctor. I go the bare minimum. I don't go when they tell me to go. I go when I run out of contacts or when my glasses breaks. Um, because I don't like going because they have to do the astigmatism test thing. And like, the, you know, remember the puffy air thing? That freaked me out. I get like, it's in my head for a week about it. Now they do this thing where they numb your eye and it weirds me out even more. And so I'm like, I'm not going. I'm going the bare minimum just when I need to get a refill. That's about the only thing that I got going on. So bare minimum is a big deal. When I rent a car, um, they're always like asking me to add on like insurance and get like the nicer, newer car. I'm like, I'm going to be in this car for like four days. I'm getting the cheapest car and I'm sorry, I'm not getting the insurance protect me. I'm not getting the insurance. Like I just do the bare minimum required. And there's lots of things in our lives that we love doing the bare minimum with, right? And sometimes we let that idea trace us, follow us, shadow us into our spiritual life as well, where we think that the whole goal of being a Christian is just being forgiven for our sins so that we have a good mark on our life, not a bad mark on our life at the end of our life, so that we get evacuated, beam me up, Jesus, to the good place when we die. And we talked about how that storyline of the bare minimum, I mean, it's got so many half-truths or quarter-truths, and the main problem with that storyline is Jesus. <laughs> and all that Jesus taught, the things that Jesus embodied, the way that he walked this earth, 
he gets in the way of this storyline of it just being about evacuation. And when we really listen to the words of Jesus, man, they're startling. Uh, They're inconvenient. They're costly. But we can't say that it has anything to do with the bare minimum entry exam requirement to go to eternal heaven. It's about so much more than that. So last week we looked at this verse, which is at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is beginning his ministry, and this is what Jesus was talking about. This was Jesus, his talking points, his stump speech, if you will, as he was going around the ancient world. This is what Jesus was saying. This was Jesus' vision statement, his mission statement. He said this, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Notice, uh, Jesus, his stump speech, his sermon that he was repeating and proclaiming had nothing to do with your individual problem, with your sin. It had nothing to do with just you saying a prayer in your head so that you went to heaven when you died. No, it was about something that God was doing uniquely through Jesus that Jesus called the kingdom of God. Many times when we read kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, we think it's just about the golden palace up in heaven. But Jesus is saying, no, no, it's about that stuff of up there, the values, the culture, the heartbeat of heaven invading and rushing in to our current reality on planet Earth. This is not about your problem. This is about God going on the offensive to start a new order and a new rule and reign on Earth as it is in heaven. We said last week that Jesus came to earth to bring the up there, the stuff of heaven, down here into our world and in our life. (laughs) May we never fall for the half-truth, the quarter-truth, that it's just about going someplace when we die. Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's here. You can reach out and touch it. It's drawn close. It's at hand. And he says our response to this kingdom of God thing that Jesus was starting is to repent and believe the good news. Repent has all this negative, guilt-ridden language attached to it, but in the first century, to repent means to literally walk in a direction, to follow, to follow the way of someone, to stop following our desires and to repent and walk in a different direction. So he says, come follow me, come follow in my direction. And he says, believe the good news, and belief in our um, world we think is just about mental ascent. It's about filling in the right bubble on the Scantron test. It's about checking the right box. But belief is actually more about fidelity, It's more about allegiance like we talked about last week. So Jesus says, I'm starting this new kingdom of God thing. It's coming here, and I want you to walk in my direction, to follow me in my way, repent, and I want you to believe. I want you to not just mentally ascend to, but I want you to put your allegiance, put your faithfulness towards me. And he says, we're going to put the world back together because I'm bringing the up there down here. So we said last week that for us to follow this invisible God in our modern days, we need to begin reorienting ourselves to know that the story of the Bible, the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus is that Jesus is king. He's the boss. He's the leader. He's in charge, and he's inviting us to show allegiance to him and to walk in his ways, to shadow step, follow his steps as he walked through this life. So it was all about reorienting ourselves to Jesus being king last week. This week, we're going to talk about reorienting our vision, the way that we see those around us, the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world and culture and society. Jesus was flipping that all upside down, and he says, I want you to come see the world turned upside down the way that I see it. So that's where we're going today. We're going to invite Jesus to change the way that we see people, ourselves, and the world around us. So before we dive into the text, would you guys pray with me and just invite God to have his way in our thinking and in our vision this morning? Let's pray together. 
Jesus, we're just compelled by you. By the way you change lives that we celebrate, we're compelled by the way that you want to disrupt our normal way of thinking. And Jesus, as we talked about last week, we don't want to just um, acknowledge that you're king, but we want to have allegiance to you as our king, as our leader. And so we invite that same reality into this space. Have your way in the way that we see ourselves, the way we see others. God, may we be your kingdom people. May we take steps today to partner with you to bring the up there of heaven to invade the down here of our normal everyday lives. So God, have your way in this space. In your name we pray. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew, one of the uh, biographies of Jesus' life that's collected for us in our New Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus after his temptation and after his baptism, Jesus kicks into I am on the mission mode. And we're told here in chapter 4, verse 23, what Jesus was all about and what started to stir in the ancient Near East as he was on the move of his mission. We see this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. And what was he announcing? Announcing the good news about the kingdom. Like I said last week, if you look for it, you see Jesus' thesis statement. You see his mission of announcing the kingdom everywhere. And this is what Jesus was doing as he was beginning his mission. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And news about him spread as far as Syria. Jesus was healing people, showing signs of what it looks like when God's in charge, when the kingdom is at hand. And the news is spreading not just in their local community, but it's spreading across the known world. And it gets to be even more of a buzz about it because large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and east of the Jordan River. Jesus is announcing the good news of the up there coming down here, and people are just all abuzz about it. I mean, people, not just from his town, but from surrounding communities, from the wrong side of the tracks, start to hear about what Jesus is doing, and they just want to hear more. They're compelled by Jesus. And so Jesus, what he goes into next is basically, he's like, I'm going to have to tell my manifesto. I'm going to break down what this kingdom of God thing is all about and how you can be a part of it. So there's all these crowds that are gathered around him. And then we're told the very next verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, this is what happens next. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. If you grew up in church, this is where Jesus is going to begin the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection of Jesus' most famous teaching. It's probably what Matthew and Luke uh, and Mark wrote down because they're like, man, Jesus, remember he told this story about this? And they're like recalling all these incredible things that Jesus taught in the countryside. And we have it recorded for us in our Bibles. And what's amazing about this, I mean, a Sermon on the Mount, I always pictured growing up that Jesus went to like this like top of this mountain and he was just talking down at people, kind of like the top of the mountain that you'd have at like X Games where there'd be like snowboarding or something like that. And Jesus goes to the top of the mountain to like speak to the masses with this big booming voice. But in reality, uh, in the geography of where Jesus did this, it was more of like a foothill. It was just a little bit of a hill. Uh, we say mount in a lot of ways, theologians believe, because they're trying to tie it to Moses getting the Ten Commandments from the Mount Sinai. And so this is like the new order, the new manifesto of the kingdom. So they're trying to tie those two things together. But what's even more interesting to me, I had to do some research into, is Jesus, he gets on this mount or this foothill to start this teaching. But he, then we're told he does what? He sat down. 
Now, let me ask you this. Like, if you were trying to get some elevation to talk to more people, why would you sit down when you got on top of the mount? Why would you take a seat? It's an odd thing to do, right? Well, many theologians and scholars have picked this up and they've said, Jesus is actually sitting down because Jesus is about to break out his kingdom manifesto. He's about to tell people what it looks like to follow him as their king. And so what did kings do in ancient times right before they'd, sit down, right before they'd share their decree? They would sit down on their throne. <laughs> they would sit down and say, this is how my kingdom is going to be run. And so Jesus, as he's got these crowds gathered and he's got his disciples around him, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to tell you what it looks like, this kingdom of God, and how you can be a part of it. So I'm going to sit down on my throne to sit down and say, I'm the king. Here we go. This is so revolutionary, you guys. Jesus is about to share with the first century followers, he's about to share with us what it means to follow him. Not just to believe in him, but to follow him and to be part of his kingdom, this new thing that he's doing. And he starts by announcing who's blessed, who's God's, who God's favor falls upon, who true happiness falls upon. He says, this is who's blessed. This is how he kicks it off. Now, we get a lot of mileage in our, in our modern culture about blessed, right? We have, you know, hashtag blessed things going on. Uh, like when you're circling around the mall trying to find the best parking spot at Target and it's pouring down rain or snow, and then all of a sudden there's this perfect spot that opens up right next to the handicapped spots but not the handicapped spot. And you're just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Hashtag blessed. I know sometimes when I go to Chipotle, which is one of my favorite like lunch stops, and I just ask for chicken on my burrito bowl, and they give me a scoop of chicken, but there's just a little bit left in the pan before they've got to get the next pan out. So the guy looks at me and goes, I got you. Just gives me the rest of the pan. No extra charge. Hashtag blessed, right? I mean, you feel those things. We feel, and we, you, we throw that word around all the time when we get like the raise, when we get a new job opportunity, when we finally get the new toy, the new car, the new boat, the new acquisition that's going to make us feel good. And so in our modern culture, when we hear the word blessed, don't we just sort of think lucky? Don't we just sort of think, oh, I'm just so lucky, or oh, I'm so fortunate. I'm just blessed, man. And we have this picture in our mind when we think about blessing as the, when we're on top, when things are going our way, when things are going beyond our way, they're just falling into our lap and it's so amazing. This is what we think blessing is about. Enter Jesus, who's beginning his kingdom manifesto to tell us what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, and he's going to share a list of blessings. <laughs> Many people have called the Beatitudes. So what I want to do is I just want to read all eight of these blessings that Jesus uh, pronounced at this Sermon on the Mount. And as we read them, I want you to think for yourself, which one do you disagree with the most? <laughs> which one of these do you wrestle with? Which one do you just see on the screen and you just imagine coming from Jesus' mouth and you're like, mm -mm, no way, wrong, doesn't happen, doesn't work. Which one do you have tension with? Which one do you need to wrestle with? Because this is how Jesus started his kingdom manifesto, and it's up side down. He begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, can we get real? Like, Jesus, seriously, like, what are you talking about? I mean, there's so much in my spirit that even as I read these words, and I've read them so many times this week in preparation, I just want to look at these words and these phrases and be like, Jesus, okay, there's got to be some other explanation. Because these people don't have favor upon their lives. These people don't experience deep happiness and joy. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And maybe for you, as I read these, like, there are multiple things you're like, no, that's not true. And you just want to, like, verbatim, and maybe you don't feel comfortable saying this because you think you're supposed to, at least out loud, agree with everything Jesus says, but you want to be like, no, Jesus, you're wrong. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my aunt's story. Let me tell you my coworker's story. That's not what blessing is all about. Jesus, in these Beatitudes, he takes aim at our prized possessions, and he takes aim at our prized positions of what we think blessing is all about. And he flips it upside down. And he says, I'm starting this new kingdom manifesto, this kingdom movement of the up there coming down here, and I'm letting you know that you need to start thinking differently. You need to turn your thinking upside down to understand who's blessed in my kingdom. (laughs) Jesus is turning it upside down. He's asking us to see things in the inverse It's almost like an act of rebellion from the way that we see the world naturally and says, see the world differently. Now, I've heard many teachings about the Beatitudes, these list of blessings, where, and I've probably given some actually throughout my life, where it's, you break each one of these down, you're like, hey, you need to do more like this, because if you're more poor in spirit, if you're uh, more hungry and thirsting for righteousness, if you're more pure in heart, then, um, then God's favor will rest upon you. And I just want to push against that notion a little bit, that this is a list of, you need to do these things so that you're part of you know, God's kingdom and you're blessed, because that really falls apart quickly, right? Because for one, one thing we know clearly from the teaching of Jesus is that we can't earn God's favor on our life. We can't do something and then God will respond in love. God loves us and we respond to his love and that's how we actually change, right? Not only that, but some of these are really weird when you think about them to be like, so I'm supposed to be like mourning? Like I'm supposed to be not rich in spirit, strong in spirit, but poor in spirit, I'm supposed to be lacking in spirit. I'm, I'm supposed to be persecuted, and that's when things are going well, when people are picking on me or kicking me while I'm down because of what I believe. Like, it just, just sort of falls apart. And I've been reading multiple theologians about the Beatitudes the last couple of weeks. And Stanley Hauerwas, who's a just incredible thinker and New Testament scholar and theologian, he says that we should really look at the Beatitudes not like a list of to-dos, but as a proclamation of good news. He actually said this. This is so good. He says, too often those characteristics of the Beatitudes, that list of blessings, are turned into ideals we must strive to attain. As ideals, they can become formulas for power rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age brought by Christ. When we break these down, you'll be like, oh, I just need to do this more. I need to be more like this. I need to be more like this. Hauerwas says that it becomes formulas to attain God's blessing. It's a formula to attain power instead of just realizing that Jesus is making a list of good news, proclaiming good news, not a list of to-dos. Because he says that this is showing the characteristic of people, of the new age brought by Christ. It's a list of announcements of good news, not things that we need to do. 
So what I want to do is I'm not going to break down all eight of them, but I did pick four of them, first four. And I just want to show us how Jesus, in each one of these blessings, he's inviting us to think differently about those around us, to think differently about ourselves, and to think differently about this kingdom that God is bringing, and to shift our thinking upside down, because that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. So I just want to break these down a little bit so we can see the characteristics of people that God says, oh, these people are close to the kingdom. These people are right in line. Flip things upside down for us. The first one, Jesus pronounces this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We might say, we might say, blessed are those with the most followers on their social media, the most influence, the most shares, those who have it all together, they're the first in line to the kingdom, right? We might say that, but Jesus, he flips that upside down and says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We think, often, don't we all think that like what God's after is an accomplishment list of all the spiritual accolades and uh, things that we've done, all the letters after our name or all the, the different cool religious things that we've done. We think God's after that. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you know the entry exam into what I'm doing is just to admit your spiritual bankruptcy. (laughs) You don't impress God, Jesus is saying, you don't impress God with all the religious things that you do. But God says, hey, if you're hungry, (laughs) if you're lacking, if you walk with a limp in this life instead of walking with a puffed out chest, oh, you're on the right track. The kingdom is closer to you than you could possibly imagine. Jesus is saying the entry exam into this blessed life of my kingdom is by admitting that you can't do this life on your own. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Let me just say this. The longer that I follow Jesus, you guys, the longer that I learn, the longer that I try to follow in his kingdom ways and be an apprentice of this Jesus in my life, the more I come face to face with my own brokenness. I'm not more prideful (laughs) If, if I really try to follow Jesus, I come face to face with my sin. I come face to face with not just my bad behavior, but sometimes my bad motivations behind my good behavior. And I just feel like I, I see clearly in my poor in spirit nature that I can't do this on my own. And it just leads me to humility. Jesus is announcing that those who walk with a limp, those who admit their fallenness and are in touch with their own brokenness in their lives, man, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. They're on the right track. The kingdom that God is bringing is close to them, closer to them than they can possibly imagine. And you guys, Jesus actually embodied this with his life. Jesus, who had a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. Now, he wasn't sorrowful. He didn't really walk with a limp because of his brokenness, but he had a humble relationship with his father. He was confident in his relationship with God, so much so that it was just born out of a close prayer and talking with his heavenly father all the time. And he never had to show off. He never had to show out his power. (laughs) But he just walked with God perfectly, and people were drawn to him because Jesus was poor in spirit. Can you imagine the picture that we get of Jesus in the Gospels and him walking around prideful? No, because that's not who he was. Jesus embodied what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Now, next, we might say this. Uh, We we might say uh, that um, blessed are the thick-skinned, for they never show weakness. Blessed are those who roll with the punches and never slow down to actually feel the pain of life, the tough ones. Blessed are those people. But Jesus actually says this, 
Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve, for they will be comforted. Isn't it interesting in our modern culture that having a stiff upper lip, uh, just being able to like let things hit us and roll off of us and just keep moving, keep working, keep pushing forward, keep grinding, like that's almost like a badge of honor in our culture. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, no, you know when you're close to the kingdom, you know when you're really blessed and my favor rests upon you is when you let the pain and the hurt and the challenge and the trauma of this life hit you and you lean into my presence as the hurt hits you. Oh, that's when you're close to the kingdom, Jesus is saying. It's upside down from being tough. It's being tough enough to let the pain of life hit you and to walk with me through it, to feel my presence through it. My friends, I'm finding there's so much hidden beauty in life when we don't try to medicate our mourning and our grieving of the pain of life away. We don't medicate it. We don't push it down, but we let it hit us, and we invite God to meet us there. That's where the beauty of life is. I, I imagine that you've had a painful experience in your life, and you would say this, man, I don't wish that pain, that mourning, that grief on anybody, but I'm grateful for the way that it shaped me, and I'm grateful for the way that I experienced God in it. Maybe you could say that. Jesus is inviting us to see grieving and mourning not as something that we should avoid, but something that we should walk towards with God and let life hit us and to be open up, to be broken open to where God's light can shine in us and through us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus embodied this, you guys. Jesus was the most manly man who ever lived, the truest man who ever lived. And he was so in touch with mourning and grief that when his friend Lazarus died, we're told in the shortest verse in the Bible, but maybe one of the more impactful verses in the scriptures, that Jesus wept. He mourned. He grieved. He screamed in agony because he felt the pain of this loss. Jesus embodied what it means to be one who mourns. Next, we see this, a blessed are the powerful. We might think, blessed are the powerful, bombastic, for the world is theirs to take. Blessed are the superheroes on the front lines, the high-powered leaders with booming presence that make you tremble when they speak. We might say that, but Jesus says this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Oh, this is so upside down from our Western American culture. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Now, when we hear the word meek, what do we think about? We think about shy. We think about weakness. And even like meekness sounds like weakness. It must mean weakness, right? But no, to be meek is not weakness at all. Uh, actually, the definition of meek is to have strength under control. To be meek is to have strength, but to be under control of your strength. It's not about being weak and powerless and oppressed. A meek person is someone who's comfortable in the background, Someone who's comfortable behind the scenes, comfortable not being the superhero, but somebody who can make a big difference, but they choose wisely when to use their strength. Meek people are people that aren't weak, but they're people that let others borrow their strength instead of reminding others of their weakness. This is what meekness looks like. And Jesus said, blessed are those who play behind the scenes. Blessed are those who are sidekicks. Blessed are those who don't have to wield their power like they're showing off but those who use it in a timely manner. 
who know when to use it and how to use their power. Jesus says it's not about the superheroes. It's not about those who need to be center stage. It's about the sidelines and the sidekicks. And my friends, Jesus embodied this beautifully. Jesus, the king of the universe in human form. But we're told he emptied himself of his divine ability so that he could recognize and and identify with us and to be fully human and fully God. Jesus embodied what meekness looks like, and it's upside down from the way we think about it. Now, we might also, we might think this next, that blessed are those who come Super Bowl Sunday, drink all the beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree football-watching buddies, and they shall be satisfied by the buffalo wings and the cheesy puffs. Blessed are those who satisfy their carnal desires and not think about the world outside of them, but only think about what feels good to them, for they will be satisfied. We might think that. That's what blessing is really all about, right? Jesus flips it upside down. He says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, when we see the word righteousness, automatically we go to like this legal contract language of like people that are on the right side and they're, they, they do the things that God does and they don't do the things that God doesn't want us to do. That's how you're righteous, right? But in the Jewish mind, in the mind of Jesus, righteousness is this beautiful, complex idea that's not just about staying away from bad things. It's so much more. Actually, righteousness to a, a first century Jewish mind is the word sedeka. Like Jason Sedeikis from Ted Lasso, that's how I remember how to pronounce it, uh, Sedeika. And Sedeika is tied to this idea of justice. Sedeika, this idea of righteousness, is about everything in its right place. It's about being a person of generosity and caring and looking outside of our own circumstances to care for the poor among us, to make sure that we're not building our empire, our worlds on their back, but we care about them because that's what God cares about. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who long for righteousness, for the world to be put back together, for those who want there to be justice and equity among all groups of people. Blessed are those people who hunger and thirst for it. Notice he doesn't say those who like make it happen, (laughs) but those who long for it. He says, that's what blessing is all about. I was in a circle with some friends on Tuesday night, and we were having this late night discussion about um, just the, the prison system in our country. And just the injustice of um, just the lacking of uh, everything that's right place when it comes to prisoners and people that are incarcerated in our country. I mean, did you know we did a little bit of research just about how incarcerated we are in America? That America, we hold 20% of all the world's prisoners. One out of every five prisoner in the world is in America. But the United States only has about 3.7% of the world's population. What is this all about? Is it just that Americans are more unlawful, that we're just more evil than other nations, or is there something systematic that's just off? And I think we could all on any side of the aisle say that something's a little broken inside of that system of incarcerations, right? And we're just arguing about it, and we're like so passionate about how it's wrong and how this isn't just, this isn't the sedeka that God is inviting us to be a part of. And we all went home frustrated, and the next morning I read the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who long for the world to be put back together, for everything to be in the right place. For they will be filled. They'll be satisfied. 
It's not of my hand that I can fix anything, but it's longing for God to put the world back together and letting him invite us into the steps that we can take. That's where the blessing really is. My friends, Jesus embodied this. Jesus, as I've said before, was the original rage against the machine. (laughs) Where there was corruption, where there was injustice, Jesus was the first one to turn over tables. He was the first one to weep over the injustice of his country, of uh, his capital city of Jerusalem. He was angry about it all the time because Jesus embodied longing (laughs) for righteousness and for the world to be put back to rights. And all of these Beatitudes, and we just looked at about half of them, it shows us that the kingdom of God is a different order. It's a different culture. It's upside down from our world. And it just seems like Jesus lifts up and celebrates people that we don't think about, that we think are on the outside looking in. So uh, just in a way of application to make this make sense to us, um, there's just a couple of things we got to like bring it back home to us. First, we've got to ask ourselves the question, and this is maybe the most important question that you'll ever answer for yourself, but... Here's the question. Who is this God? Like, who is this God revealed to us in Jesus who wants to flip everything upside down that we understand in our society? Who is this God who is massive and holy and cosmic, but yet when he comes to bring his kingdom manifesto, he elevates the weak? He elevates the lowly. He elevates the mourners, the ones who are the sidekicks, not the heroes, the ones who don't walk with a puffed-out chest of pride, but those who walk with a limp. Who is this God? Is it possible this God is like reaching out to you as well and saying, I see your mess, but come follow me. Come on, repent. Walk in a different direction. Come follow me. Come believe that I've got something up my sleeve that's going to change the world. Who is this God? I mean, doesn't the poetry just knock you out that this is who Jesus is? This is his first statement about his kingdom, is that I'm looking at people upside down. That's so good. I'm looking at you guys, and you don't look like blown away as much as I am right now, but I am blown away by this. Who is this God? If, even if you have a hard time believing In this Jesus, can I just say this? Like, don't you wish that this was true? Don't you wish that there's a God who sees you in your weakness and in your yearning and in your longing and in your grief? And he says, come on, come with me. I see you. Don't you long for that? Man, that's who this Jesus is. That's who this Jesus is. I got to move on. I don't want to move on, but I got to move on. Next, here's the thing I think Jesus is inviting us to do. This might sound wordy and theological, but we'll break it down here. I think Jesus is inviting us. He wants us to join him in announcing the good news of this upside-down kingdom. He wants us to join him in the announcement. Now, what I'm not saying here is that you should walk up to somebody who's mourning and be like, hey, you should be happy. Jesus said you should be happy. Stop crying. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Let the record show so I don't get canceled later. That is not what I'm talking about here. But Jesus is inviting us to widen our angle of our lenses, to widen our view towards people that we don't, might think don't belong. And he says, no, invite them in. Announce the good news of this upside-down kingdom. Widen your view. Go from standard four-by-three to widescreen to see the people on the edges and invite them in. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 4, the first scriptures we looked at where Jesus is announcing the kingdom. And let's look at this from a different angle. Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom, and healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. 
Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from the east side of the Jordan River. So when Jesus sits down to spread his kingdom manifesto, who does he have around him? He's got all kinds of people. And if you think that there were cultural walls built up in our day and age, man, you've not seen nothing until you think about the first century in Israel. Because Jesus' followers, the good old country boys from Capernaum, they wouldn't have been comfortable with people from the ten towns. Oh, people from Judea? Oh, man, like, we can't even be in the same presence with them. We spit in the, in the sand around them to show them that we don't like them at all. But Jesus isn't saying, no, come on, guys, I want you to see that I'm inviting these people in. And I want to share these blessings because you're thinking that these people aren't blessed, but I'm widening the lens. I'm widening the perspective to let them in. So how can we follow this invisible God? How can we follow Jesus today? Oh, we announce God's blessings on anybody and everybody, especially people that our culture, and let me say this, people that our churches have said, you don't belong here. Widen your perspective to say, Jesus invites you. Yes, you to come follow him. Jesus says, this is who I'm inviting into my kingdom. This is who the blessing of the kingdom is for, the weary, the weak, the grieving, the sidekicks, those who are hungry for a different world. He's inviting the single moms, the older people, the divorced people, the minorities of every kind, those with their names in the paper, those with perspectives about their life that are less than positive, those with reputations. Jesus says, I'm inviting you into it. This is the challenge, you guys, is to widen our perspective about who's actually blessed. Just make it wider. Just make it wide enough to where it looks like Jesus' perspective, because he invited all these people in. I love what Rachel Held Evans, author, um, oh, she passed from us a few years ago, and she means so much to me. Her work does, but one of the quotes she has about the kingdom is so powerful. Let's skip ahead to this Rachel Held Evans quote. She says this, this is what God's kingdom is like, a bunch of outcasts oddballs gathered at a table. And they're at this table not because they're rich or worthy or good, but they're at the table because they're hungry, because they said yes. So this is what the kingdom is. There's always room for more. My friends, the challenge of the Beatitudes is to see the world upside down, to see the world differently, to see that Jesus is inviting everybody to the table. And what we might see on the cultural headlines is not the whole story. It's not the true story at all. It's the kingdom. It's bigger. It's more beautiful. It's more inclusive. And you are invited no matter what your past and your current situation. A few years ago, I ran across uh, this story from a book from Philip Yancey called uh, what, God is, what Good is God? And Yancey wrote about the 2004 uh, Ukraine election, which Ukraine in the news now, it's kind of interesting. But in this 2004 election, the reformer Viktor Yushchenko challenged the entrenched party and nearly died for it. He was an outsider going against the powerful party there, and he nearly died for it. And on election day, the exit polls showed Yushchenko with a comfortable lead. The reformer was going to move in and change the Ukrainian government. But through outright fraud, the government had reversed those results. And that evening, the state-run television reported, ladies and gentlemen, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. They wanted to shut it down, said it was, uh, they were using fraud to shut down that the reformer had won. But however, government authorities had taken, not taken into account one feature of Ukrainian television. 
the translation it provided for the hearing impaired. So on the small screen insert, on the lower right-hand corner of the news report, there was a, somebody there signing for the hearing impaired. And the brave translator said this in sign language, I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They are lying, and I'm ashamed to translate their lies. Yushchenko is our president. He won fair and square. He said this, but no one in the studio understood her radical sign language message. The deaf community, inspired by the courageous translator, um, led what became known as the Orange Revolution. The deaf community texted their friends about the message and the fraudulent elections, and soon after, uh, journalists began to take courage. Likewise, they refused to broadcast the news that Yushchenko, the reformer, actually lost. They refused to do it, and they started to wear orange and have orange all around them to show that they knew the truth of what was really going on underneath of the government's lies. So much so that the government finally buckled under the pressure, consenting to Yushchenko's win in the elections. And this time, Yushchenko emerged as the undisputed winner. Yancey said this in commentary in his book. He said, our society is hardly unique. Like the sign language translator in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, along comes a person named Jesus, who says, in effect, don't believe the big screen. Don't believe the headlines. Don't believe the social media hits and shares. They're lying. It's the poor who are blessed, not the rich. Mourners are blessed too, as well as those who hunger and thirst for a new world and the persecuted ones. Those who go through life thinking they're on top, they'll actually end up on the bottom. And those who go through life feeling at the very bottom, they'll end up on the top. After all, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose his soul? My friends, don't believe the headlines. Don't believe the cultural lies. Jesus is telling us there's a new kingdom, and it's upside down, and it's beautiful, and it invites you to be a part of it, and it invites you to widen your perspective to invite anybody else to come be a part of it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are inviting us to partner with you to announce this kingdom, to announce your good news for anybody and everybody who comes to you. So God, may we see you clearly. May we see ourselves clearly. May we see the outcasts, the oddball, the ones on the edges clearly. May we have your heart for them as well. So God, we love you and we thank you that you're inviting us into this upside down kingdom. May we walk in your way this week. May we see the world the way that you see it this week, not to believe the lies, but to believe what you are doing is bigger, it's better, and it's actually reality. God, we love you, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.